Today, our text comes from Mark chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 8, and we'll start in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with, the bread, here in this, with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them, and they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away, and immediately He got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. This is the word of the Lord. So we've been going through the gospel of Mark these last few months. And what we've been saying is that in Mark's gospel, Jesus is fundamentally redefining for us that ancient concept of the good life. That is, where do human beings find their ultimate flourishing? Where do human beings find their ultimate Happiness, And the answer that Jesus gives us each and every week as we go through this gospel is this, that the good life is found in the kingdom of God, those who dwell in the kingdom of God. And in today's passage, we see 
that there is only one condition that can keep a person from dwelling in the kingdom of God, and that is hardness of heart. So the main idea of what I just read is as follows. Hardness can be cured. Excuse me. Let me rewind that and take all those words out, replace them with other words. Hardness cannot be cured, but blindness can. Hardness cannot be cured, but blindness can. And I want to open this text for you under three headings. Number one, we're going to look at the miracle itself. Jesus feeds 4,000 people. We'll look at that miracle and see what we can learn from it. Second, we're going to see the incurable hardness of the Pharisees. Third, the curable blindness of the disciples. The miracle, the hardness, and the blindness. So let's start with the miracle. Now, the miracle itself is pretty self-explanatory. Matt actually dealt with the feeding of the 5,000 a few weeks ago. Um, There's not much that's too different about this particular feeding miracle, so I'm not going to dwell at length on it. We find in verse 1 that the great crowd had been following Jesus for several days, but we're not told why. Uh, Maybe they loved his teaching. Maybe they hoped to see another miracle. But regardless, they're following him. And after a few days, Jesus was ready to dismiss them and go on to another town. But it says that Jesus felt compassion on them because he knew that they, they were hungry. They didn't have any food, and he refused to send them home hungry. And so he makes his intention known to his disciples, saying, I'm going to feed them. That is what I intend to do. And you would think that since the disciples had already witnessed the, were like the hands, uh, the distributors of the bread and the feeding of the 5,000, you would think they would know what's coming next. But they ask Jesus in their bewilderment, where are we going to get bread? Where are we going to get food enough to feed 4,000 people out here in the middle of nowhere? Then Jesus asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they respond, we've got seven. And a few fish. So Jesus takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, and begins to distribute it to the people. And it says that all 4,000 of them ate and were satisfied. And not only that, afterwards, the disciples picked up seven baskets full of broken pieces. Now, um, just for funsies, uh, this is not the, the the basket here is not like an Easter basket. The word, that's not the, what the word means. It's like um, you know, like we get for your kids, and or maybe maybe we don't do that in the church. I don't know. Anyway, but the, those those pagans who do Easter baskets, um, you know, it's like this big. But this this kind of, just kidding. I'm kid. If you're new here, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, this, the word for basket here indicates like a, a basket the size of the, the garbage cans that you set out on the street, you know, like when, when it's garbage day. Like you could fit a whole human being in this. And they picked up seven baskets full of bread after it was all over. So Jesus performs this miracle of the feeding, and everyone leaves that place satisfied. And I'm emphasizing the fact that it's, that it's miraculous, because um, some people can do some strange things with this, um, with this passage. I, I'm emphasizing the miraculous here um, because some people who are embarrassed by the presence of the miraculous in the scriptures will say that there really wasn't a multiplication here, right? That, that 
everybody had like, or some people maybe had like a secret lunch tucked away. And then, and then when the disciples made this sacrifice of the bread for everyone, then everybody started feeling guilty and they're like, all right, get this. And then everybody started sharing and then everybody was fed. Mm. It's lovely. Now, I hope you can see what, what, what serious damage you have to do to this passage in order to make it say that. I mean, it says that these people hadn't eaten in three days. Now, technically, it just says that they had been with them for three days and they were with Jesus for three days and they were hungry now. But if they had eaten their own food for three days, let's just say they just ran out. That's why they're hungry. I don't think Jesus would be as concerned that they're going to faint on the way home. It better make sense out of it that they had not eaten for three days. So it's pretty clear these people have no food or else they wouldn't be in this condition. And furthermore, if it is the case that a few people had lunches that were secretly hidden away and they felt guilty and so they started sharing, it doesn't make any sense out of the seven baskets full of bread that was picked up afterwards. So Mark, I'm arguing, is telling us in no uncertain terms that what occurred here is miraculous. Jesus broke the bread, seven loaves full, seven loaves worth, and 4,000 people ate, and there was an abundance left over. And our text goes on to show us two responses to that miracle. That's the miracle. Now let's look at the two different responses. First, the incurable hardness of the Pharisees. So the first response comes from the Pharisees. After Jesus is done with the feeding miracle, he gets into a boat. He goes across the sea uh, to another town. And that's where we find the following encounter in verse 11. It says, the Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. So the Pharisees are seeking a sign from him. They want to see his credentials for calling himself the son of man. Now, to be clear, it doesn't say that they just wanted like an act of power from him because they had plenty of those to witness. What they wanted was a sign that showed that his power could be from heaven, that his power was from heaven. Now, just because somebody was a miracle worker, it didn't mean that they were necessarily a miracle worker on behalf of God. Um, it could be, the power could be from heaven, the power could be from hell. And that's what they're trying to figure out. Is your power from heaven? Is your power from hell? Because if you'll remember, uh, he did an exorcism at one point um, in another gospel in front of the Pharisees, and their conclusion was he casts out demons by the power of Satan. So it's not the, the working of the powerful miracle in and of itself that is the sign. They want something that confirms all the claims that he is making about himself. So what would a sign like that look like? I mean, I, I don't know what they were asking, but we're not, I mean, we're not told. Maybe it'd be something along the lines of Elijah's contest with the prophets of Baal. You remember this? Uh, two altars, build them up, put two bulls on the respective altars. Whichever God answers by fire, that God is God. Maybe something like that. That would be a sure sign that the Lord is with him. Now, what they're saying to Jesus, in essence, is this. Prove yourself. 
provide us the evidence we need to believe that you are who you say you are. And by the way, Jesus, the burden is on you to convince us, not the other way around. Let's be honest. Sounds like a pretty reasonable request. Like, right? I mean, here he is. We don't know where he's from. We don't know whether he's of the devil or of the father. We... Give us something to go on. Give us evidence that you are who you say you are. I was recently watching an um, interview by uh, somebody who's interviewing Neil deGrasse Tyson. If you don't know him, you've probably seen him before. He's this astrophysicist and a general spokesman for the scientific community. And so the interviewer asked him, do you believe in God? And his answer I thought was very good. Um, he said, listen, if as we're probing the origins of the universe, further back, deeper down, if as we're probing uh, the origins of the universe, we run into the man with the white beard, I'm good. That's fine with me. No problem. But... Um, Unfortunately, no one has produced any evidence so far, and therefore, I remain unconvinced. Now, in my ears, that's only the modern manifestation of the posture of the Pharisees towards Jesus all those years ago. Prove yourself to us. And until you do, I remain unconvinced. And let's be honest. I feel like that's a reasonable request, right? You're saying a lot of things, Jesus. You're making these huge claims. Just prove it to us, and all shall be well. We will believe. And by the way, how easy would it have been for Jesus just to provide this proof? You remember last week we talked about the woman who comes to Jesus and asks for her daughter to be healed, and you know the rest of the story doesn't matter for this point. But the daughter is like across town, in her bedroom, Jesus, on the other side of town, says, yeah, she'll be healed. And then all the way across town, it happens. Like, it would be so easy, so easy for him to provide this sign. But what does Jesus do? Verse 12. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly. I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Jesus sighs deeply in his spirit. Now, this is a difficult word to translate into English, but elsewhere this word is used of childbirth. Like something like a, a deep groaning that emerges from the core of one's being, full of anguish full of sorrow. I mean, the Pharisees make what to our ears seems like a reasonable request, and it sends Jesus into this deep emotional anguish. What's going on? What's going on is that the Pharisees are actually not presenting a reasonable request. Because, if you'll notice in verse 11, Mark's, Mark gives us the motivation for these Pharisees. It says, they demand a sign. Why? To test him. That's why. They don't, they're not demanding a sign. They're not requesting a sign so that they may believe in him. They're, they're demanding a sign so that they may test him. 
They're putting him to the test. They stand apart from Jesus, arms crossed, on the other side of the street, making a demand on him. Give us proof. Or we have no responsibility to believe your claims. And although, don't we know, although Jesus could have called on the host of heaven to crush the insolence that was in front of him, he he grieves for them. He sighs deeply in his spirit. They are hardened all the way through. And he says, no sign will be given this generation. In other words, if you cannot believe on the basis of all that I have already given you, then you won't believe. Because this is what I offer. And when the Pharisees show Jesus this level of hardness, the story ends in a tragedy. Verse 13, And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. What we learn from this is that if a person persists in the hardening of their heart against the Almighty, then Christ's response is not to whack that heart like a pinata until it cracks. His response is to leave. He will no longer bother you. And that abandonment is the judgment. And that's why I say that hardness of heart is fundamentally incurable. If a person persists in this hardness long enough, Christ's response is to say, then you may have the world as you like it, and I will no longer bother you. And he will depart and go across the sea. So if ever I was talking to Neil deGrasse Tyson, I would tell him, if you're waiting for evidence enough to believe, you will die waiting You are standing apart from God, wanting to test him, and Christ does not respond favorably to those who wish to test him. Be careful, I would tell him. If you genuinely want to live a life unharassed by the old man with the white beard, then he will grant that to you. So that is the incurable hardness. That's one response to the great works of Christ. Let's move to the third, which is the curable blindness of the disciples. So let's see what happens next. So they leave, the Pharisees. They get in the boat. They go across the sea again. And Jesus takes some time to teach them about this last encounter that they had with the Pharisees. And he says this in verse 15. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, in the Jewish mind, and frankly, in many places in the scripture, leaven is a symbol for corruption. So Jesus is warning his disciples against the corruption of the Pharisees and of Herod. But the disciples really misinterpret this statement. They say in verse 16, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. So they've forgotten to bring enough bread with them on the journey. And at this oblique mention of leaven... They start to panic. He knows. 
Like, have you ever had that moment, like, with your parents? Like, they, you, you did something, and you're trying to hide it, and then they just, like, they just say something about, yeah, but maybe we should go to the baseball game today. And you're like, oh, they know that I took the baseball and threw it through the window. Like, it's this moment where it's like this panic. He knows, but they, they try to hide it from him. And they start sussing with one another. If you would have remembered, well, it's not my fault. And Jesus, aware of all this foolishness, rebukes them, starting in verse 17, and listen to this. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? I mean, the, the frustration of Jesus is palpable here. And notice what Jesus asked them. Did you hear it? Are your hearts hardened now, based on what we have been learning so far, that would be a terrifying question to come from Jesus Christ. But apparently, the answer to this rhetorical question is no. Their hearts are not hardened. Why? Because he doesn't abandon them. He keeps teaching them. That's not what he does with the hard-hearted. He stays with them. We've seen what Jesus does to harden people. So hardness is not the disease from which these disciples are suffering. They are suffering from a different one, which is blindness. He says, having eyes, do you not see? Are you blind? So I think the question that, that immediately pops into my mind is, okay, so what's the difference between hardness and blindness? If I had to choose between two diseases, I'll take the curable one. What's the difference between hardness and blindness? The difference is that hardness cannot be cured, but blindness can. That's it. In order to see this, we need to look at the final portion of our passage. So in verses 22 to 26, uh, we see Jesus heal a blind man. And this is a very strange healing. And remember, at the end of John's gospel, uh, we preached a long time ago. But at the end of John's gospel, it says that Jesus performed so many great deeds that, that if we were to write books about all of them, the world would not be able to handle all the books that we could write. And so that tells me that the miracles and the deeds that are included in the scriptures, in the gospels, are there because they are highly instructive. They mean something. They're, they're not just meant to report, but they mean something. So Let's try to figure out what this healing of the blind man means. So Jesus encounters this blind man, takes him apart from the crowd, lays his hands on him, spits, and then says, do you see anything? The man opens his eyes, says, kind of. I, I see people, they look like trees walking around. So his sight is not yet restored. Then Jesus lays his hands on him a second time, and he says, okay, how about now? Do you see clearly now? The man opens his eyes. Sure enough, 
He's got full sight restored. Now, what in the world is this? Now, why was this man's sight restored in two phases? Like, Jesus heals other blind men in the Gospels, and it's instantaneous. They receive their sight immediately. Deaf people receive their hearing immediately. People who can't walk jump up. Like, immediate, there's, there's not this, like, this two-stage process of, oh, I can kind, I'm kind of healed, and then, and then I'm fully healed at the second stage. What in the world is going on here? The answer cannot be that Jesus just didn't put his heart into it the first time. Like, oh, you know, I was hungry, I was hangry, and, you know, I, I couldn't. Maybe he uttered the wrong incantation that time. It can't be those explanations. None of that. So what's the meaning? Well, it certainly, think with me here, it certainly arouses my curiosity when right after Jesus pronounces the blindness of the disciples, there is a miracle in which he heals a blind man. And then it further arouses my curiosity even more when this is the only healing where there's a, a two-stage process in which a blind man receives his sight gradually. It seems to me that the purpose of the performance of this miracle is this, that blindness can be cured, but sometimes not all at once. I think what Jesus is doing for us here, and more importantly for his disciples, is calling them blind, but then showing them some good news. Blindness is not the same condition as hardness. The heart of heart refuse to see no matter what's in front of them. The blind are willing to see even if they can't yet see fully. Are you following? Does this make sense? Okay, good, good. And it's this willingness that makes all the difference. Under the healing touch of Jesus, even the blind will come to see, even if it takes two stages. And what's astonishing to me is that if you want to know how this occurs, Jesus actually tells us. If we want to know how does somebody, and we're speaking metaphorically here, how does somebody go from being blind like the disciples to actually seeing, he tells us. Verse 18 to 21. He says, do you not remember do you not remember when i broke the five loaves for the five thousand how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up when i broke the seven loaves for the four thousand how many baskets full did you break up, did you take up the reason these disciples cannot see is because they've forgotten the mighty deeds of Jesus. And Jesus patiently brings them back through a rehearsal of his works. When I did this, what was the result? When I did this, what was the result? Remember, think about it, turn it over in your mind, inhabit that memory. And the act of remembering the mighty works of God has always been the way that God's people gain understanding. That, that the way in which God's people learn to see in this world. You remember in Joshua's time when um, 
He, he brings the people over the um, Jordan River into the promised land. And there was a miraculous stopping of the river so that they could cross over on dry land. And once the last Israelite took their foot out of the riverbed and put it on the territory of the promised land, the river comes back and is flowing as it normally did. And the Lord told Joshua, I want you to set up a pile of stones right here as, as a way for you to remember that here the Lord helped you. Listen to how Joshua puts it um, in chapter 4, verses 21 to 24. And I didn't have it up here, so just, just listen. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over the ground over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you, for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did at the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Joshua says to his people, these stones are not merely here for your own memory. But one day, your children, you're going to be walking through the fields with your children, and they're going to see that pile of rocks. It must have been very large. And they'll say, what is that for? And then you will have the occasion to sit them on the ground and say, let me tell you a story. This is where the Lord brought us over into the promised land on dry ground. And these, these stones stand there to stir our memories that God always works on our behalf. If you go back and read the book of Deuteronomy, um, you'll find a very close association between forgetting and idolatry. When the people forget the mighty works of God, the slide into idolatry is right on its heels. And then back to Jesus' conversation with, with his disciples, it's precisely because they have forgotten what Christ has done that they themselves find that they are blind to his teaching. And the way he cures their blindness is to stir their memory. How many loaves did you take up? How many loaves did you take up? Remember, believe, and when you do, by the grace of God, you will find that your blindness is turning into sight. And this teaching, just in case you were wondering, is the same teaching for us all these years later. We must remember the great deeds of God, but it's very easy for us to forget. We know that he's done great works on our behalf, but think of all the uncertainty and doubt that you find yourself in even today. I don't know what it is. You know what it is. If that's where you are, it's, it's likely because you have forgotten. You have forgotten what Christ has done on your behalf. So my job up here today, and I'm glad you have come, my job is to remind you. You see, if you were to go back to that spot on the Jordan River where that old pile of stones used to be, 
you would find that it stands there no longer. We're not told in the scriptures when it was torn down or who tore it down. But if you've ever been there, you know it's not there anymore. But our Lord, praise God, our Lord has given us a memorial that can never be torn down. And that everlasting memorial is not in the form of a pile of stones. That everlasting memorial is in the form of a suffering Savior spilling out his atoning blood upon a cross of wood for the forgiveness of your sins and mine. And that is why we return to this hallowed ground here every single week. We have to hear the gospel preached. We have to sing glad songs of salvation to our God because in our everyday life there is work and there are bills and there are PTA meetings and there's all sorts of things that distract us. We so easily forget all that God has done on our behalf. This is why, if I can help it, I'm here every Sunday because if I'm weaker than I think I am. I forget more easily than I think I will. And if I am not reminded that Christ died for my sins, even mine, the Father loves me, that I have been given the Spirit in earnest, then I will forget. And I will find that as I look around, the people are starting to look more and more like trees walking. And I didn't even know that I was becoming blind all over again. We must remember Now, um, it may be that you are hearing me today and you're like the Pharisees. You stand apart from Christ, arms folded, refusing to believe that Christ died for your sins. And the good news, strange use of the term, but the good news is, is that if you want him to leave you alone, he will surely do it. If you cannot believe based on the evidence he has already given you, then I'm afraid he has nothing else to offer. It's not forthcoming. He has offered you the most magnificent of sacrifices and a cup overflowing with love and joy and kindness and forgiveness. And if you find the cup distasteful, then you are not required to drink. But if you're hearing me and you tremble, to think that you are counted among the hard-hearted ones whom Jesus will ultimately abandon, then there is good news for you. If you were truly hard-hearted, hear me on this, if you were truly hard-hearted, you would not be worrying about such things. If that fear lives in you, then take heart, because you are not hard of heart, you're, you're just blind. And blindness can be cured. And the fact that such a fear is stirring in your heart, this moment is evidence that Christ himself is laying his hands upon you. And maybe after today, you only see the people as if they were trees, but he is at work. Take heart. He is at work. Don't refuse him. He will heal your blindness. He will bring you into the fullness of your sight. And so come to the memorial of the cross and let him help you see all the work he has done for you. And we come to this table. And it is fitting that we do so every week. 
Do you remember what Jesus said when he instituted this? He said, he broke the bread and he gave the wine and he said, do this in remembrance of me. This is a meal for our memories. All of us see through a glass darkly, Paul teaches us. None of us sees everything. All of us are partially blind in some way, some more than others. And it is here that our memory is stirred. He brings us back and he says, don't you know that I love you? Don't you know? Don't you remember what I have done for you? Don't you know that while you were still my enemy, I gave myself for you? so that you might be reconciled to the Father. And so if you come to this table today, I can't promise the size of the increment, but you will see more clearly. That is the promise, to remember. Now, that's the invitation to this table. The only people who are invited, there's, there's people who are invited, there's people who are not invited. The only people who are invited are those who know they are blind. People who know that they are sick. People who know that they don't have it all together. People who know there's a disease inside of them that must be cured and that their cure cannot come from themselves. Their cure cannot come from without. It must come, excuse me, cannot come from within. It must come from without. It must come from the Lord Jesus himself. The only people who are not invited to this table are those who wouldn't want to come anyway, and that's the hard-hearted. This is not magic. If you're hard-hearted and you come, this will not all of a sudden awaken you. This is for those who know they are weak, not for those who know they are strong. Those of us who come to this table, we come because we know Jesus loves us and that he has made us to see. So in order to prepare our hearts for this, let us pray. Father, it, it may be one of my favorites um, places to return in your scriptures when it says in Psalm 103 that you are a father that shows compassion to your children and that you remember <laughs> you remember on our behalf that we are frail and made of dust we know all too well of our own failings. We know all too well of our own uh, broken promises. We have a long trail of wreckage that lay behind us. We don't come to you, Father, because we think we can impress you. We come to you because we are desperate for your mercy. And so I pray now that you will stir our memories of your mighty acts in Jesus Christ as we come to this table. Convince us that we are loved because we so easily forget it. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.
You are welcome to come.